You can have a French restaurant doing a braised oxtail and they can comfortably sell it for 42 to $50, right? And you would have oxtail prepared in, say, a traditional Jamaican fashion that would probably exceed it. And, you know, people would lose their minds if it was, you know, more than, I don't know, 15 bucks. Hi, welcome to Black Tea. My name is Milena Williams. And I'm Dalton Higgins. And this is the last episode of our season, episode eight. The last episode, he gets what happened? Hey, time flies when you're having fun, huh? Yeah, and it's going to be a good one, too, because we're talking about food. Yes, I'm a foodie. You're a foodie. We're all foodies. Um, so our guest this week is Ryan Hinkson, and he's the curator of the Eat Famous Instagram account. He's one of Canada's most popular food influencers. He's amassed over a quarter of a million energetic and engaged followers, and his knack for creating eye-popping and impactful content has resulted in various viral hits. From creating the Eat Famous hashtag that has been used over 4 million times to his co-creation of Holy Chuck's Eat Famous Burger that has been viewed on Facebook over 20 million times, times Ryan knows how to attract the right attention. The food industry has taken notice and this has resulted in Ryan partnering and creating content for some of the largest brands on the planet. Ryan has worked with household names like McDonald's, Air Miles, Google, American Express, the Toronto Raptors, Hudson Bay Company, Domino's Pizza, Hershey Canada, A&W, Wendy's, the LCBO and many more. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you guys. So I love to eat. Dalton loves to eat. I mean, most people love to eat, but not everybody does what you do. So I was just wondering how you got into this. Like, do you love cooking? Do you just have a connection to food? How did it start? I, I wish I had a <laughs> a more interesting uh, story in terms of my relation to food prior to this. I mean, I had a <laughs> high school job at, at Taco Bell <laughs> making tacos, and I actually didn't cook for myself until I moved out for the very first time. I got really, really paranoid and probably spent like the last two, three months at home learning like all of my my favorites that either my mom or my dad cooked. But um, fast forwarding, uh, a good friend of mine, Terry Diaram, he had a, a business idea and he had reached out to me because he knows I have a marketing background and um, a writing background. I used to write for a website called Trend Hunter, and he had stumbled across an article and told me that he needed someone to um, create some uh, communication and marketing information around um, an idea, this business idea that he had and also run some social media. At that point, I didn't even have a personal Facebook account. I didn't have any awareness of uh, social, no experience or anything like that. So I had just kind of been um, introduced to Instagram and I felt with the nature of what he was trying to do that it would just be a, a fitting platform to experiment with some branding and my um, foray into uh, creating food content on social was, was born that way. So through no grand design of my own, can't take any credit. Yeah, totally. Now, now here's the thing. Um, you know, I, I've seen you. I've been following you for quite some time because you post these like incredibly these like quadruple layered uh, meat patties, <laughs> burgers, like this crazy stuff. Like I'm yeah. just like, wow, it's a. Uh, and in fact, I I think I DM'd you. I said, Ryan, yeah, we got to go eat. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> we still do. <laughs> we got to do that, right? But but here's yeah. the thing. Now the one the one thing with you that why Mel and I were kind of like it'd be awesome to have you on our show is. You know, it seems like as far as in the in the food space, right? We 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 don't see a lot of black and racialized foodies out there. To be perfectly honest, to be right. blunt, 
and um, and you seem to be kind of, you know, it, it seems like racialized foodies seem to be getting organized. You know, I noticed there's all these alignments now. And so can we talk mm-hmm. about that kind of, is there a bit of a movement happening as far as black and racialized foodies? I, I think so. And it, the interesting thing is, is we've always existed, but I think uh, we fall victim to what our, our people do in a lot of parts of um, life is we can exist without being seen. It's almost as if there's this perception that black people don't eat anything outside of patties or, <laughs> or jerk chicken. And it, it it's really crazy to me because um, I have friends, black friends that have the most complicated, <laughs> you know, coffee orders ever on the planet. But, you know, a Starbucks doesn't speak to that or the assumption of like someone who wants a triple fat latte with foam could only be for all intents and purposes like a white girl. You know what I mean? Um, So I I tried once the account really started to grow, I made it my mission not just to highlight what um, people of my own culture were doing, but I wanted to be very, very visible in all spaces, just so people understand that our interests are varied, our con- contributions to um, areas of the uh, the food industry that people don't assume that we contribute to are, are there and they're very present and they, they dictate culture and they dictate trends. Um, I, I think, you know, with um, the, the kind of upswell of a refocus on racial injustice. Racial injustice has always existed, but you know what we've seen in the last few months and then being home and with people being forced to confront issues that they were able to kind of turn a blind eye to before, you're seeing a lot of um, brands, media reach out to these you know, black and uh, people of color who are in the food space, who, like I said, it always existed, but it's now um, a situation where people want our take or people want to show that we're being included. So we've always been there, but you're definitely right. The um, organizing, I think, is happening because we understand that, you know, people want to hear from us and maybe their intentions aren't pure or, you know, it was coaxed when it should have been natural. But while we've got this time to, you know, not only um, share what we do, but also our opinions and our voices and how it impacts um, us outside of just food. And does that make you, cause I know a lot of food influencers are, um, like kind of anonymous and they sort of let the food speak for itself, but yeah. does that make you kind of like know that you have to attach yourself to the brand to have that voice? Yeah. I, I thought it was really important. I mean, there's a lot of incredible accounts that you've never seen the face of who's behind it for myself personally. I felt like Eat Famous really, really started to grow when I did attach myself as the face of it. So it did exist as just a food-based account in its inception. So I was I wasn't on there. When Instagram rolled out stories and when you had the capability to have a little bit longer video, that's when I decided that the only thing I had different going on, because with the food world, you see a lot of trends and then everybody goes to the same restaurants and everybody's eating the same things. And everybody has access to the tips and tricks that can allow you to create really stellar content. So the only thing I felt like I had different was myself. And then through going to a lot of tastings and the events that were happening, being the only black man in the room nine times out of 10 or nine and a half times out of 10, I knew that I could capitalize on the fact that if I made myself the the face of it, people would definitely remember me and they'd know me and it would stand out. You, You made an interesting point, this idea of, yeah, we're out there. 
um, you know, influencing the culture, you know, across cultures. Um, so it's not right. like we, you know, because I happen to be a black guy, Mel, a black woman, that we singularly eat um, Caribbean cuisine. Like that, that that's right. not at the case at all. We, you know, Mel and I, we eat across cultures. You know what I'm saying? Like we'll Same. eat. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter what part of the world. We, we, you know what I mean? We can get into it now. Now, now here's the thing, though. Um, let, let's go into Mel and I. Just happen to be of Caribbean descent, Caribbean background, and um, you know, th- there are all these stories on the on the internet tied to uh, customer service and Caribbean eateries. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know that that may be maybe a taboo subject, but we're gonna go there, all right? Um, right. But but I also have to I put, but I, yeah, no, totally. But I have to put out a disclaimer here, right? In that, in no way am I slamming Caribbean food eateries, restaurants. Hell no, because they oftentimes serve the best food in the city, bar none. Okay, and I will mm-hmm. continue to eat at Caribbean eateries eateries twenty four seven. That's not the point of this, but right. but it's interesting. Like in in Vice magazine a couple of years ago, they they ran this story, uh, and it carried the title, you know, why the best Caribbean food comes with a of bad service all right and and the author was <laughs> wow. pretty yeah and the author was pretty much <laughs> was kind of saying what some of us kind of secretly feel um for example yeah. you know the the author you know he he said like for example you know when you walk in a caribbean restaurant you'd be you're greeted with his you know is way a want you know what i mean is way a want right. though you yeah. know <laughs> yeah which is like a jamaican right. nation language translation that means you know what do you want you know um yeah can we talk a little bit about that without like pissing off you know caribbean restaurant owners you know like cause this is just, <laughs> we're just sure. having some fun with this right because like i said i'm gonna eat there regardless but yeah, what's your take on that? Oh, oh, same. I mean, you know, we all deal with that, that no cook yet in already, that finish. Like we yeah. know, we know how it goes, but it's a testament to how incredible the cuisine is that, you know, you can put up with um, what might not be seen outside as the greatest service. And I mean, some things are cultural, though. They're, they're innately um, understood by like I don't take offense, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um I remember at a, a corporate job that I had introducing some friends to uh or colleagues I should say probably for the most part to to West Indian food just because I was tired of like everybody else dictating the lunch runs. So I was like, no, we're gonna we you're gonna expand what we're eating. And everybody loved it, but you could see like the, the first few trips of the tension. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> they wouldn't <laughs> They wouldn't like order exactly what they want. They'd allow themselves to kind of be led out of fear. And it, to me, I'm, I'm laughing because it's hilarious. But again, like I said, a testament to um, how incredible our food is. I'm of Caribbean descent as well. Mm-hmm. That, you know, they, they'll go and maybe even be a little uncomfortable. What I guess does concern me more so than those aspects, not that, you know, all cultures don't have a little bit of room to improve or things that are innate to us that maybe the broader, um, you know, people culturally don't get or oh, they don't yeah. relate to. Oh, customer service but, also. Poor customer service cuts across uh, cultures as well. Yeah, that's yeah. part for of like sure. this. That's for sure. I'm not going to name out other cultures. We're no. talking, you know, but yeah, that's for sure. Hey, straight up, I have Chinese friends that, that they tell me if the workers are too nice at a certain Chinese restaurant, they, they, don't, they don't anticipate good food. They feel like it's a cover up. <laughs> They feel like it's a cover up. Yeah, 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 totally. You know, so um, Mm -hmm. but you know what I I think does concern me more so than the um, the service quotient, not that it couldn't be elevated. Um, The the interest or perhaps um, access to to some of the tech that's enhancing customer experiences or allowing people to discover you. Okay, Okay. you know, um, so I mean, I go to restaurants in a variety of ways. And I mean, I say that in terms of like 
a lot of times restaurants reach out and ask me to come in or I'm working with someone specifically. So I would go in and then there's spots that I just want to go to because they're new and I want to check them out. And then there's spots I just love and I just want to go eat. And I may not announce that, you know, Eat Famous is, is coming through, but I generally still will take a couple of photos and will post them and share them on my social. And a lot of times the hope is, especially if I have a great experience at, um, a West Indian restaurant or a black owned and operated restaurant is that I'm if I'm tagging them and you know the post is getting a lot of traction that somebody on the other end is going to respond and I'm not talking about even setting up a financial transaction with me later or for me to work with them on a paid basis or even to to thank me for blessing them with my presence because that's not what I'm trying to do but just the acknowledgement just so they know they've got a supporter who can maybe drum up some more attention for them who can produce some content and that's I guess where I'm have more concern in terms of um yeah because um to be honest most other restaurants if I go in and tag somebody you know there's a whole conversation that happens immediately after yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you know, even to that point, though, um, but it's it's kind of like cultural. Some things, like we know the work and time that goes into getting that, you know, that jerk chicken to taste just mm-hmm. right or that mm-hmm. curry goat or, you know, oxtail or whatever. So the authenticity is so hugely important that maybe sometimes some other aspects. And, you know, across cultures, I mean, we're just having yeah. this kind of fun conversation, but maybe it's just like, yeah, we just got to focus on the food so that, True. you know, as, as opposed to, you know, when you go visit the restaurant and, you know, there's never any everything listed on the menu available no matter what time of day you visit, you know, all those kinds mm-hmm. of things right so yeah yeah totally i remember a few years ago um when chubby's opened there was a bunch of controversy around it not only because yeah. the owner was white um right but i think they were quoted as to say you know characterizing it as the only place to get amazing jamaican food when there's so much great jamaican food in the city yeah. and it just so, it's oh. it was so interesting to me but like i also think there's this perception that like our food is fast food and it's not mm-hmm. fine dining and i was just wondering if you could right. speak to that tension of course of course and i think you know it points right to experience and understanding there's a lot of um you know, downgrading that kind of happens to, um, I guess, what would be described as cultural food. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's it's funny because you can have a French restaurant doing a braised oxtail and they can comfortably sell it for 42 to $50, right? And you would have oxtail prepared in, say, a traditional Jamaican fashion that would probably or, you know, rival it or exceed it. And, you know, people would lose their minds if it was, you know, more than, I don't know, 15 bucks, right? So I think the the food and the way that it's prepared isn't the real issue. I think it's like perception of the, the culture and and the people so that if, you know, we're doing it or if somebody from that background is doing it, it's seen as, oh, yeah, you know, it's fast or it's occasional, but it's it's not, you know, something worth spending a lot of money on or it's not something I would have if I was having a big fancy dinner and I was trying to impress somebody, um, even though there's real value and merit to the um the techniques that people are using, the, the manner in which it's prepared, just uh, because somebody isn't classically French trained or trained in a European style doesn't discredit their ability as a, as a cook. So I think, you know, it's a real issue when we have that, that view of, of that type of um, food and cuisine. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, even with that, do you want to even expand on that? Because here, here's the funny thing is, um, you know, when, again, you know, as foodies, you just eat, you know? So we're just right. like, hey, we're going to eat, uh, you know, when I was in Montreal just this past weekend, I'm, I ate at a Mexican food. Like, it was pretty every other, every culture but my own culture, to be right. perfectly honest. So it's, it's just food, but people don't, but then people don't sort of look at, uh, you know, they, they keep food and issues tied to race on separate islands, you know? Yeah. Um, but but I guess some of the new school, like, you know, foodies of your ilk, and there's a whole new uh, crop of foodies that are just like saying, no, there's a connection. Do we, you know, we talk about issues around class, around, yeah. you know, maybe gender, race, right. yeah, even food, food, food you know? insecurity as well. Yeah, oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So it's what do you have to huge. say to that? I, yeah, this idea of just even talking about food and race, because to some people that might be weird, you know? Yeah, but I mean, it exists. Um, you walk into a restaurant, look at the difference generally between front of house and, and back of house. And front of house would mean, you know, like somebody who's a, a host or, you know, a waiter, someone that's serving you that's seen by the customer versus um, look at the, the racial makeup of people that are in the back of house, right? Um, it, it starts there. So as soon as you enter the door, before we even talk about what the the cuisine is and how it tastes, how good it is. So we have to have that conversation. It's it's unavoidable. Maybe, you know, in someone's perfect world, you should just be able to, you know, enjoy food and, and not worry about who's making it. But unfortunately, they're, they're just truths that are uncomfortable and things that we do need to address and work through because it bleeds past that for the people who may not be seeing career advancement. So you have a, a white chef and he's working with, I don't know, he's doing like a Neskovich fish or something. And he's seen as like groundbreaking or a trailblazer or, you know, willing to take risks. And then um, you have a, a chef of say Caribbean background, who's doing an Italian dish and, you know, you'll, they'll be called out for using a type of noodle that wouldn't go with that sauce. You know what I mean? And it's, it's literally the same thing. Um, Chef Adrian Forte, who is an incredible talent and he was the first uh, chef of color on Top Chef Canada just just this past season. Mm -hmm. There was an episode where I believe it was Oxtail he was prepping and one of the comments ahead of him presenting it or, or cooking it was like, oh, I'm sure it'll taste great, but I hope it's pretty, right? Mm-hmm. So why is the assumption that mm-hmm. because the Jamaican chef is making oxtail, it's not going to look good? You know, and it's a provocative thing to to hear and it's an upsetting thing to hear. I know people that actually reached out to network and, you know, called them out on letting that air. Um, and I feel two ways about that because sometimes, you know, that you feel like that's irresponsible because there's no follow-up or no lesson unless, you know, you see him kill it and it's great. And then you draw your own assumptions. But, um, also, you know, sometimes I feel like those little indiscretions, it's good for it to come out because we have to question why people are are saying that because I don't recall. And I I watch it because I'm in the space. I watch a lot of food-based television and those type of call-outs and microaggressions are generally reserved for for Caribbean food. Right, right, totally. Or yeah, it's rooted food, in, I should say. 100%. Yeah, no, no, I totally get yeah. that. What, yeah. But it, even as far as, you know, so we, we all like to eat. Um, that, that much is clear. Like, what, mm-hmm. what, like, what, you know, I've always wondered, like, with uh, foodies, you know, you're out at, you know, restaurants and, and checking out the scene, you know, different right. types of cuisine from across the globe, across, you know, seven continents. Like, how, like, what are you eating in your own household? You know what I mean? Like, what's going on? Like, so are you, me- <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> So the number one question I get when people meet me, especially for the first time or they DM me, they're like, how are you not 300 pounds? So at home, it's 
it's salads, it's smoothies. I do intermittent fasting. That's one of the things about um, social media and Instagram, I guess, that a lot of us forget is that it, it's controlled by the creator, right? I provide people with what I want them to see when I want them to see it. But there is a perception in this image that like everything I'm eating are these, um, you know, super indulgent over the top meals, which I'm, when I'm out there doing it, do I eat it for real? Cause I, I'm very against food waste and I don't want to perpetuate anything that's false, but I mean, you know, there's a lot of time I'm, I'm spending making sure that the, the right things go into my body. But I will say <laughs> that a lot of the foodies that I met, um, myself included, you know, back a couple of years ago, we've all kind of expanded a little bit. We're filling up more of the, <laughs> the, the frames on those pictures. So <laughs> I forgot to ask this before, but can you give a little some details about the holy chuck burger that you created yeah i love that so place. um that that was really 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 fun uh holy chuck is one of the first restaurants that i started to work with that allowed me access to their kitchen and to get really creative and i was doing a takeover of a u.s-based instagram account called food beast they might be at a million followers now. I think at the time when I was doing a takeover for them, they were over 500,000. And at that time, those type of numbers were just um, not seen in the food space. So I was doing basically like um, a weekend in Toronto. So hitting a whole bunch of different spots in the city to give their audience a taste of Toronto. Um, Dirty Bird, they, they had done like an oxtail poutine for me. So I was mm. getting all the restaurants I was working with to do a special eat famous meal or eat famous item. So the owner of Holy Chuck, he came up with this burger where the buns were two deep fried wheels of brie cheese. There was oh four God. patties, eight pieces of bacon, like maple syrup. And I mean, it's just, a, it wow. looks like a mess, but it went crazy, like completely viral. I think that was the first thing I went that truly went viral. Right now, um, upwards of 20, 25 million views on Facebook alone. It was on UK Daily Mail that usually reports on like Meghan Markle and Prince Harry and the Kardashians. It's It was on the news in Japan. Um, mm. it, and it was funny, yeah. we had a dude drive down from from Pennsylvania just to eat the burger. Cause it was just like a one-time thing created for this food beast takeover I was doing. And then food beast, they sent people down from the States to cover it. So it was, it was definitely a good look. And I, I did have some of it. It was way too much mm -hmm. to eat on my own. I think about four of us kind of cut it up and split it. Um, but it was one of those things that, you know, it was obviously for the visual, but it actually, tasted good i know it might be hard to, oh, <laughs> it might it be hard to amazing. believe but yeah that's another thing too because you don't want to just do shock and awe and then there's nothing behind it but um yeah, yeah, yeah. the holy chuck for i don't um <laughs> yeah i i don't think i've eaten anything that that was has been that crazy since yeah 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 you it's funny you mentioned the words shock and awe yeah and i think there are a couple posts on your you know gram or like it's like a burger the size of your head you know and i was just yeah. like i said ryan how's ryan eating this you know but but hey but there's, yeah. a, but there's a reason you have you know over a quarter of a million followers on instagram you know we we rely on you to kind of you know sort of point you know point us to trends or new happenings or some real you know innovative original kind of uh you know takes on uh, different styles of cuisine so right. i mean we'd actually be remiss i mean do, are there any 
food trends happening right now, like in general, you know, because Mel and I will eat anything, man. Like cross culture, like, you know what I mean? Hot, sweet, sour, spicy. Like what's going on out there as far as like, you know we can even talk about Toronto if, if you'd like. Yeah. So I've seen a melding of um, flavors and just things that ideally you wouldn't think would go together, um, but they work in terms of flavor profile and combining the right ingredients. I recently had a ice cream and fried chicken sandwich at Tokyo Hot Fried Chicken. And again, <laughs> something that would probably sound crazy, but um, they use like a really, like a sweet brioche blend. There's hot honey, really, really crispy fried chicken. And then that, um, French vanilla ice cream just kind of works. The The main issue was like keeping it together because it's going to melt in a second. But if you go at it real quick. So I think you're seeing um, people melt things together that normally wouldn't go. But again, not just for the, for the visuals, because you've just got a lot of these young chefs who are spending a lot of time learning, you know, what works in terms of uh, combining flavors and switching things up a, a big trend though that is um not so much about the food but more of a reaction to what we're going through in the world i.e covid is food that's being um optimized for for takeout and the the irony right. is that you, you had spoken to it earlier is that you know caribbean or black food is seen as primarily takeout kind of food but i mean that's going to be the wave right this I, I works feel, yeah. yeah i feel like we're heading back towards probably you know some more restrictions in terms of how we can go out or or eat and dine and i think the takeout thing is going to be something that is um with us and dominating the manner in which food is is prepared and thought about for a while and we're, we're set up for that communally you know so that, that's good to see uh, so another great trend that I'm loving is we're seeing an influx of a lot of very, very talented, um, I don't know if I should describe them as home chefs, but just cooks who may not have a brick and mortar, they may not have a food truck, or they may actually do that, but they've this this nice little pocket of people providing customized and in-home catering with just flavors that are just knocking you down. And I'm seeing a lot of uh, Southern style uh, food. So like creamy mac and cheeses and fried chicken, fried shrimps paired with crab legs and lobsters. Recently, I had gotten some incredible food from Chop Time Catering, their incredible Queen Bee Kitchen. She probably had the best candy DMs I've ever had in my life. Uh, Mr. Clutch Wings, that's a brother that is just doing crazy wings. They look like they've come off like a pterodactyl or something from uh, <laughs> from the Flintstones. Like the size is just massive. They're huge. Home by six, a young sister, Shania Chisholm, who's just doing really, really incredible work out of her kitchen. Um, and the people who are well-established, like Brian Butler, one of the founders of, of the Dirty Bird, he also has a catering company called uh, Eat Blessed. And um, their food is... I remember I was at a birthday party the other day and it was catered and I didn't know that that's what they had, but I was so glad that I went to that party because it was one of the, it was like one of the first weeks after the, the COVID restrictions were kind of eased up and I was very tentative about going out. But when I saw that, that blessed tray, I, I was very thankful that I was there. So yeah, I think um, there's a lot of people that are realizing, especially with um, home delivery and, and COVID impacting 
you know, people's willingness and ability to get outside and they're coming to you or you can pick up. So that's a dope trend that I'm seeing. A lot of um, really talented black cooks seem to be leading the charge. So that's, yeah, my favorite recent trend. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing this information with us. It's so interesting. No problem. Thanks for having me. It was a good time. Welcome back to our tea segment. Um, And we're going to be talking about something that I think initially we didn't really want to speak on it to not promote this person, but it's just impossible to ignore Tory Lanez. Oh, yeah. He's spilling all kinds of tea over (laughs) Brampton men's. Yeah. He's ridiculous. I mean, it's just, it's such a terrible situation, Um, but I'll just try to give some of the facts. Basically, I guess it was two months ago on July 12th, Megan Thee Stallion and Tory Lanez were involved in, there was a shooting and it later came out that he shot her twice in the foot and he hasn't said anything for two months and recently decided that he was going to not apologize, not make a statement, which he sort of alluded to on Twitter last Thursday night, but drop a mixtape saying he didn't do it corny (laughs) what a cheese ball i mean i just feel like there's so many things he could have done to respond to the situation and this is one of the worst things i mean in hip-hop i mean how do you feel about it like i i just i feel like this is kind of unprecedented yeah how do i feel about it boy i i don't feel about it i have no feelings (laughs) left you know for uh, Tory Lanez. I mean, the fact the fact that he's using the shooting of Megan Thee Stallion to promote his new record, like it's ridiculous. Actually, you know what I'd say? It doesn't surprise me in the least bit, right? Let me give you. I, I give you just a little history. I mean, in Toronto, like you know, it's almost like he's the king of the cheesy publicity stunt, right? Like I remember years ago, mm-hmm. like I like I wrote a book about Drake, you know, the Drake phenomenon, like years ago, and mm-hmm. and I remember, you know, in, in one of the chapters, I sort of talk about how he launched. Like this was back in like 2010, but. He, he, you know, there, there was a video on YouTube um, where he was sort of masquerading like he was Drake's little brother. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. He, there, was, there was this video that got uploaded and it was like, you know, Drake's little brother, Tory Lanez, does a freestyle. You know what I mean? And we nobody knows if it was posted by him or his camp, but um, it created this rumor that Tory Lanez and Drake are related, you know, brothers. And and they, everybody so says he's always been a, a stunt king. Oh, he's a stunt king. And then you know you know you know what he did that same year. He he released a video to clarify that he was not Drake's little brother. And then he said, "Hey, I'll give I'll give um, Drake ten thousand. Like he said, you know, I'll give Drake ten thousand dollars if he actually listens to my music. You know what I mean? Like if he listens to my music, I'll give him ten thousand dollars. This is when Drake was coming up in the game. So he does all these cheesy little stunts that don't work most of the time. Yeah, I remember, I think, uh, last year he was accused of making up a story about colorism on one of his music video sets. Yeah. Um, People said that he sort of made up a story where there was some sort of like colorism with the women in the video and he said he defended them and then it came out that he might have been lying. So, I mean, he uh, he doesn't seem like the most honest person, Um, but this is just so shameless and so abusive um, because he's basically spent the entire mixtape denying the shooting which seems really bizarre because she already told us that it happened there's proof that it happened i believe there's medical records 
Um, and she said that it was him. So I just, I can't believe he even has room to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the, you know, it was interesting too, while all of this is happening, you know, Megan the Stallion was recently named, uh, one of the most influential people in the world by Time Magazine, you know? So I think there's some, mm, she has some right. credibility happening. <laughs> there's no credibility well, issues there. Yeah. And that makes it even worse because he's using her success and her trauma that he inflicted on her for his gain it's disgusting and i just and it's just so weird because in the album i mean thank goodness i didn't have to listen to it i just read about it but he talks about you know still caring about her but how could you care about somebody where you spent the entire project trying to gaslight her yeah i mean he threw her under the bus you know throughout the the you know the mixtape which i, I refuse to listen to but i've seen on genius you know the lyrics and uh, people it's been circulating uh, quite frequently and rapidly on social media, you know, but this guy, but you know, Tori too, like I remember him, you know, in Toronto, like when he was here, um, cause he had left, uh, Canada years ago and you know, he, he's, he, this guy's like a hustler, you know what I mean? Like he used to be that guy mm. that you'd see selling those $5 mixtapes on street corners, you know, those, you know, back in the days when people used to have yeah. their mixtapes on, you know, dead Toronto's Eaton <laughs> center selling mixtapes and stuff. So that's what he used to do. Cause I remember oh, I seeing him. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's hustling oh. mixtapes on street corners. He was, so he, the guy's a hustler. There's no doubt about that. So does I just feel like, does he think this is going to work? I mean, he, there's obviously people that believe him because Megan's getting harassed in her Instagram comments. And it's like, I guess he's trying to find enough people to believe his story, um, which is incredibly dangerous. But like, I just, I'm trying to figure out what his goal is. Is it just, is that it? Just to continue on as if nothing happened? and maintain his fan base. I just, I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's having so abusive. It's super abusive. I think he's have. I think it's having the opposite effect. You know, I think a lot of, uh, some of our woke friends and, and those are even a little less woke are going to, you know, stream Megan Feast aliens records. You know what I mean? They're just like, right. this is ridiculous. Like, I'm not going to stream this Daystar, his new mixtape. Like it's, this is, this is outrageous, offensive, you know? So I think it's having the opposite effect. You know what I might do though, Mel? I think, um, you know, in you know, he won a, a couple Juno awards these last few years, right? Like he's won Juno awards, mm -hmm. best rap record, uh, best R&B soul record in, in Canada. And, uh, you know yeah. what I might do? Like what we should do is get, uh, you know, go on change.org and set up a, and just like get, you know, get the petition yeah. happening to lobby, uh, Karis, which is the Canadian Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences to revoke his awards, take his awards uh, back. They you know what should. I mean? <laughs> like, seriously. They should. It's just, it's unbelievable. And I know that, and obviously, you know, in hip hop, there's a history of a lot of the time men entertainers you know there's there's abuse there's abuse in the industry there's misogyny running rampant through the industry but have we ever seen somebody shoot someone else in the industry and then deny it and diss them through it like it's just yeah this is new it's gotta go this is some <laughs> new territory this is new some some new uncharted waters like, ab yeah no accountability no regret like but there was also these text messages that leak where he was apologizing to her and basically admitting to guilt. So it's just like, I don't, like what? Yeah, yeah. And he was framing it in the, around jealousy. He was saying they were dating, and then you know he was, uh, I guess, interested in uh, uh, was it Kylie Jenner? I believe. Yeah, yeah. There was. He also um, started dissing people who were standing behind Megan, like I believe um, Kalani and. Jojo had taken him off their re like these were their recent singles, so he dissed them. He dissed Chance the Rapper. I think he dissed J.R. Smith. Just anybody that's supporting Megan, which is just like okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, I mean, you're a scumbag. Total scumbag. He 
Now, he is yet to be charged with any crime, you know, and the investigation is ongoing. But uh, in the court of public opinion, he is uh, court of public opinion. He's guilty as charged. Um, and uh, Brianna Taylor's are still running free. So, yeah, this is the, really the criminal justice system. It needs to, you know, get working. <laughs> it's not working. Uh, yeah, it's really upsetting to see that this could happen to a black woman and she could say that it happened. We have there's proof over and over again. And there's still room for the the man to say, oh, well, no, it didn't. And people are actually saying, you know, there's two sides to every story. It's just so dangerous. Yeah, yeah, it's super disappointing. I mean, or am I disappointed? Absolutely. Uh, you know, am I surprised uh, at the outcome of him putting out a mixtape? This, you know, the, the same guy who claimed to be, uh, allegedly claimed to be Drake's brother to get uh, attention to his product. Um, no, I'm not surprised. I don't know what it's going to take for people to just say enough is enough. Yeah, yeah, it's going to take uh, perhaps uh, the dirty uh, criminal words, criminal charges. You know, it, it, that's what it's going to take. You know, he's got to go. Yeah, ditto. I second that notion. <laughs> I third that notion. Well, we want to thank you, the listener, for checking out another episode, the last episode of season two, of the Black Tea Podcast. Um, I'd love to thank. My co-conspirator, my partner in crime, my partner in rhyme, Milena Williams. You can find Milena at Milena Williams on Twitter. You can find me at Dalton Higgins 5 across socials, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And of course, we can, I would be remiss if I didn't thank our super producer. He goes by the name of Ryan Clark. So last but not least, I want to thank our sponsor, Fido. Uh, you know, if not for Fido's support, um, this show would not be uh, what it is. All right. So thank you all. And uh, we look forward to connecting with you all on socials and subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Peace out.